This is the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast with Dr. Julie Capel, episode number 223. Hey, vet friends. Before we get into this interview podcast with Dr. Michael Bug, I just have a few things that I want to talk to you about really quickly. One is I'd love for you to go to my website and sign up for my Wednesday weekly words. I have an email address where you will get a email every Wednesday morning and it's just a few words of encouragement. Um, sometimes it's ideas that I have either from my blog or from the podcast. So go sign up for that. It's super simple. My website is juliecapel.com or veterinarylifecoach.com. Also, I would love for you to go to my YouTube channel and subscribe. We are trying to get that built up a little bit with the episodes of the podcast. And there's also some free videos there, um, just some random things that may help you. So go to my YouTube channel, it's The Veterinary Life Coach, and um, subscribe for me, and that would be great. And then I have two other announcements for you. One is um, from my friends at 360 Coverage Pros. They're hosting a free webinar for those of you or us that are wanting to learn more about veterinary liability insurance. And we all need good insurance to protect our license. So if you want to learn the basics or you've got a current policy that you're looking to upgrade or compare, um, this is a great webinar for you. The webinar is Friday, June 2nd at 1 p.m. And it's the first in a series, so there will be more. So if you're looking to learn anything about insurance, the liability insurance to protect your license, sign up for this free webinar. You can find it at 360coveragepros.com or go to any of their social media sites and there will be a link. Also, I have one more announcement for you. It is from the Senior and Geriatric Dog Veterinary Society and they have a new webinar series that's coming out in May. It's going to be CE focused solely on senior and geriatric canine medicine. The Senior and Geriatric Dog Veterinary Society was founded by three outstanding women, two general practitioners and an internal medicine specialist, and their focus is to enhance and optimize our care for the, the very special patient population, which is senior and geriatric dogs. And this is something that I think we all need to learn because medicine is changing so quickly and more and more of our patients are geriatric and seniors. So to learn more about this fabulous CE, go to SeniorDogVets.com and use the code VETLIFECOACH50 for a $50 discount. That's www.SeniorDogVets.com and use my code VETLIFECOACH50 and you'll get $50 off. And sincerely, these are great people and they do a great job with the CE. So go check it out. Okay, now let's move on to getting into this podcast. Hello, veterinary friends. Welcome to the Veterinary Life Coach Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest for you. His name is Dr. Michael Bug, and he's a full-time real estate investor, a veterinarian based in Canada, and he has authored a new book called You're Gonna Get Peed On, 
how veterinarians can keep their dream job from becoming a nightmare while working less and earning more. I love that title. And he's also the co-founder and co-host of the Veterinary Project podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. I'm really happy to have you here. Thanks, Julie. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's so exciting. I love meeting new veterinarians and you're from Canada. So some of my coaching clients are from Canada. So I'm a little bit familiar, but but there are some differences between there and here. So I usually ask my guests the first question and just ask them to tell us their veterinary story, because I'd love to hear everybody's stories. How did you get into this profession? Where did it start for you? And how as much as you want to share. Absolutely. I'll dive in. I'll, I'll keep it short and we can poke around if there's anything interesting in there. Um, so I grew up on a mixed farm here in Western Canada. Um, so when I say mixed, that was beef cattle and grain. And that really kind of set, you know, what I thought I was going to do with my life. I love cows. I love cattle. Um, and so from an early age, I loved the excitement, you know, of the veterinarian comes out in the middle of the night and he's doing a C-section and I'm right in there watching and thinking, this is pretty cool, right? Like I could see myself doing that. So fast forward, I always had a bit of an entrepreneurial bug. Um, so I would grow pumpkins and corn and drag them on the school bus and sell them to the teachers. Um, going forward, get into vet school uh, here in Saskatchewan. And at the time, if you would have asked me, you know, what are you going to do with your life in my first year of vet school? I was basically crystal clear. I was going to have a big ranch. I'm going to have a ton of beef cattle. I'm going to be a veterinarian. I'm going to be a mixed animal veterinarian. I'm going to live on a farm. And that's how everything is going to play out. Fast forward, I graduate in 2008, uh, get into mixed animal practice, eventually switch over to small animal. And as we sit here in 2023, I have no cattle. I don't live on a farm. I live in the city um, and I'm not currently clinically practicing. So exactly the opposite of what I would have said if you would have asked me on day one of veterinary school. And, and there were certainly some moments in there, you know, that have caused various pivots along the way. I can think of a few of them. Uh, one of them was driving to work on the very first day as a veterinarian. So I was going to, to the same clinic that I had volunteered at, you know, and spent a lot of time through high school, knew everyone really well. But now I was officially a veterinarian. And I remember driving to work on that first day, stopping at a red light and just sitting there. And it felt like an eternity, gripping the steering wheel. And I had this kind of thing come over me where I was like, whoa, like, what the hell have I done? Like, have I made a huge mistake here? Because I felt kind of trapped. And I, I mm. felt trapped by the idea of, you know, for the next 30 to 40 years, from 830 to 530, or whatever the hours of the clinic were going to be Monday through Friday, plus on call, this is what I had to do. And I'm not saying that to as a dig at veterinary medicine, like I, I liked what I was going to do. I just didn't like that I had these constraints where it was like, it felt like the rest of my life was just scheduled for me and I didn't have control over that, hmm. right? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, the other story that caused a big pivot in me was get into practice, you know, a few months in, again, this is 2008, 2009. So a lot of financial uncertainty in the world going on at yeah. that time. For me, largely my head was in the sand because I, I didn't have money. I didn't have money invested. So I'm not being affected by these things, but I'm seeing it in the other veterinarians. And for me, one of the things that stood out was one of the veterinarians that had owned the practice back when I was a kid and then sold the practice and kind of rode off into retirement. So 
by all accounts, they had executed, you know, the financial playbook perfectly, right? They became right. a veterinarian. They owned a practice. It was very successful. They sold it, you know, check marks across the board. That's what I was going to do. Right. But I see them one day back at the vet clinic with the white coat, with the stethoscope on. And I was perplexed. I'm like, why are they here? And it finally dawned on me. They're here because half of their life savings have just been wiped out by the huge stock market crash that, mm -hmm. that happened. And so they're here to pick up shifts, not because they want to be, they're here because they need to be. And that just rocked my world. Like that was like finding out there was no Santa Claus. And I was like, I, I have to do something different financially. Right. And then that Dang. set me on a journey of, you know, personal investing, personal finance, eventually leading into real estate. But those were some of the key moments early in my career that have led me here to 2023. Yeah. So what did you find the difference between, because you said you went from large animal to small animal. Did you, you practice in large animal for a while first? Yeah, I think uh, one and a half to two years of mixed, right? So it was like cows, horses, dogs, cats, everything. Right. So why the switch? Why did you go all to all small? Yeah, for me, there was a couple reasons. Number one um, was all of the older mixed animal veterinarians that I saw were physically fairly beat up. So you have to remember, this is still at the time ultrasounds just catching on. Preg checking is literally sticking your arm like you have to arm all of them. Yeah, I that's already a hard, had... hard thing to do. I remember doing that in vet school. It's like, it's yeah. not easy. Yeah, not by the, like when you're doing hundreds, you know, when you get, right. get into that preg checking season, if you're in a busy practice, it, it's not doing one or two, it's the repetition of hundreds day after day after day, right. um, you know, and then just like bull testing was a big thing and you be as careful as you can with as good of facilities as you can, but you know, you still get kicked here and there. And so one of them was, I was looking at people and I was like, I don't want that right? Like, I don't want to have this long list of, of injuries and, and, you know, be in retirement and unable to use my body, right? right. And I already right. had some sports injuries to my shoulder to begin with. And I was like, the last thing I should be doing is sticking my arm in cows. So <laughs> that was part of it was looking right. ahead at like my longevity of my physical body. The other part of it was lifestyle. Um, you know, there's no way around it in, in a mixed practice. There's, there's, a lot of on-call and there's a lot of on-call travel, right? Like it, it wouldn't be abnormal right. to get a call at three in the morning and have to drive an hour before you even start the procedure, then an hour back, then you're back at the clinic the next morning. Um, so it was a lifestyle component, right? I, the, the transition to small was more, you know, stay at home, easier on the schedule. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can see that. I mean, I always thought when I was in vet school, that it would be fun to do horses. But then I spent a couple summers working with horses at the racetrack. And I was like, mm, I don't know, this is kind of hard. <laughs> and yeah. it was cold and it was hot. You know, you were always outside. And even though I still, I loved it. I love the horses and I love the smell of horses. But yeah, it does kind of change when you start to really think about what your life's going to look like. Yeah. And it is, I never, you know, as a little little boy, seeing the veterinarian come to the farm, it was exciting, but you, I never gave any thought to like, okay, now that veterinarian has to pack up, load up the vehicle, drive back to the veterinary clinic. You know, there might be another call that they're heading to, you know, who knows? I, I don't know how much sleep they're getting tonight. I just got to see the exciting side. Right, right. You didn't get to see the lull in between. Yeah. 
So what do you see as our biggest challenge right now? Just like, this is kind of a big question, but I, I'm very interested in what can we do in this profession to make it better so people don't leave the profession, or at least if they do leave the profession, they're still contributing in some way. So we're not just, you know, letting the profession go, so to speak. Like, what do you see as our challenge right now that we should be focusing on? Oh, that is a tough one. I think this is going to be more <laughs> It's a big a question. I know. Sometimes I think of questions and I'm like, did that really even make sense? But yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll kind of, we'll riff on this. So obviously there's a lot of challenges, challenges in the veterinary profession currently. Right. I will say we're not like incredibly unique in that, like we're not standalone on this. If we were okay. to look at all other healthcare professions and even non-medical professions, right? Most people are really feeling it currently in the world, right? Yes. Just on all spectrums, things have just sped up. Everyone's working. Maybe they're working two jobs, the financial pressure. It's just like everything is accelerating. And then we take that in the veterinary world. We add on, you know, maybe elevated responsibilities where there are pets lives on the line with, with the work that we do. Some of the financial stress of student debt. So I'm kind of just framing all that to say one of the things is I think it's just too much, mm. right? Like the world overall and veterinarians, we've just piled too much stuff on our plate, right? And and every right. we all think we can do it all, right? Where we can be a full-time vet, we can be a full-time excellent parent. Our kids are going to be in four different sports all week long. We're going to volunteer. And it's like all of these things are excellent. I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish people's goals and saying aim small. I'm just saying it's, it gets to be a point where it's too much, like right. no one can handle it. So why do we expect that we should be able to? Right. And why do we put that emotional pressure on ourselves? Cause yeah. I see that a lot, you know, it's, it's like, they think that they need to serve all the clients and then all the, all, the, all the family all the time. Yeah. Instead of like, look, no, I work, you know, nine to five or nine to four or whatever you choose and then you're you're done. You're off duty. Yeah, I mm -hmm. agree with you. I th I think that we do take on too much. Mm -hmm. And I mean that's in the clinic and out of the clinic. And you know, sure, it it's good to have boundaries and separate them. But in a way, it's almost it's also impossible to right. Like work affects life. Life life affects work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we talk about boundaries, like what does that mean to you? Because that's a big subject that I talk about a lot is, is setting boundaries. I know what it meant for me. And it mm -hmm. sounds like it meant for you is getting out of practice at some point. Yeah, well, yes. I mean, that was more going towards alignment. So the, the leaving okay. practice part, like I love science. I love animals. I love helping animals. But what I started to uncover was I really, really love connecting with the veterinarians. Right. And, you know, right. a lot of what I'll talk about is getting intentional and, and, you know, their financial health and their personal development and well-being. And so for me, I was more drawn that way to start helping the veterinarians as opposed to helping the pets. Right. right? Mm -hmm. um, kind of back to the boundaries conversation. I mean, full disclosure, I've, I've done a poor job of setting boundaries for a lot of my life. Right. Like if you were to snapshot me through vet school as an early veterinarian, virtually no boundaries, 
right? Like you, a case shows up at whatever time. Yes, I'll see it on call wherever. Yes. Right. I just, I didn't have that self-confidence. I didn't have that skill yet. I felt like saying no was like very bad. Like that makes me a bad person. Mm -hmm. If I say no. And that's a powerful thought. A lot of, a lot of us have that thought, right? Yeah. If we say no, if we can't help, or if we choose not to, which is even more powerful that we're bad. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I, and you know, I carried that a lot. And so for me, it was diving into, you know, personal development, personal growth. And what has really helped me is I've kind of teased apart boundaries and standards. So how I look at those is a boundary is for someone else. So if I put up a boundary, that's sort of this line or this fence that's saying to other people, okay, I'm not going to allow you to impose on this, right? So whether that's you know, me organizing my Calendly with certain days, that's a boundary. You can only schedule me on those days. Right. And I used to get really upset when people would try to impose on those boundaries. But I've kind of come to a point of realizing I can't control other people. I can't be upset. They're, they're just doing what they're doing. They don't know my circumstances. I don't know theirs. And so I kind of let go of any judgment or emotion on someone poking on my boundary, right? Right. Now what I look at is my standard. So my standard is what am I willing to accept, right? And so the only time I am allowed to, you know, to be upset or to think, boy, I handled that poorly is when I deviate from my standards, right? Right, right. I can't, so it's more I, about you and the way you're thinking than what anybody else is trying to get from you or impose on you. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, we'll like, take this really broadly. Um, you, just everyone in the world, there's, it's just a competition for your attention everywhere, right? Like social right. media, TV, radio ads everywhere. Everything is designed to get past your boundaries. And it's like, I just got to let all that go. That's, that's just the game that's being played on social media. All I can control is my standard. You know, when am I going to show up there? How long am I going to show up there? What am I going to intentionally consume or not consume? Right. So that shift from sort of boundary to standard has helped me a lot. Okay. And so when you say standard, it kind of reminds me of like your values, your, kind of your mission statement, almost your personal mission statement. Like, is that kind of how you develop these standards? Is that what it means to you? Or is, are you thinking of it in a different way? Yes, but, and this is just how I interpret it. Um, you know, core values are are very valuable. I think everyone should do the exercise of, of, of that and figuring out, okay, what do I stand for? The one thing that I find is it can be pr pretty easy to just sort of write down the standard core values, right? I'm right, honest. That you think you should have, right? <laughs> yeah, like I'm authentic, right? Like these yeah. are, these are everyone wants to write these down on a piece of paper. The, the difference that I view is the standard is how I actually show up. Okay. Right. right? So mm -hmm. if, if you were to review, you know, I've heard it said, if someone were to review your calendar and to review your bank statements, they can tell you exactly what you value and what your standards are because you're spending your time there and you're spending money on it. Gotcha. Right? So, yep. so if I have a list of core values that say X, and someone reviews my schedule and my bank statements and it and see why they're going to be like these don't add up like i say i'm healthy and i'm you know 
I'm buying garbage, you know, food and I'm, I'm, there's no gym membership. There. I'm buying I'm chips not, and dip. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's yeah. like, well, there's, there's a problem there. So right. that's where you have to face the fact that, you know, maybe my standard isn't what I say it is. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense because I think sometimes we have the words, but we don't have the, the backing. We don't stand behind it. Yeah. So if somebody feels like, I mean, this kind of makes me think of the whole burnout stress thing that we deal with in vet med. If you're not living by your standards and you're not creating any boundaries, then that's when the stress and the burnout is going to kick in. Is that what you yeah. feel or what do you think about that? I think that would be part of it. It would certainly contribute, you know, like when we look at say, take moral distress as an example, you know, that, that can significantly fatigue a person if things are happening in their life that aren't aligning with their standard, right? So I, I, don't, I wouldn't say that it's all of the burnout conversation, but I think it's definitely a contributing factor, right? Yeah. And when we look at burnout, you know, in the veterinary profession, there's, there's probably not one magic thing where it's like, okay, if we fix this, we've solved burnout, right? It's all these contributing factors to it. Right. And it's all and I would argue it's all individual. Like, I think there's there's not a I think everybody wants a like a light switch or a quick fix. And in my mind, if if you're trying to fix something as big as this, as big as being burned out, that there has to be a multi factorial approach or something. There has to be a lot of things that you change or do. Yeah, I would agree. You know, it's the classic. You know, if you keep doing what you've always done, you're you're going to keep getting what you've always got. Yeah. So at some so, point, you have to have a pattern interrupt in there. So do you have specific techniques either that you used to use or that you do use now to stay within those standards and those boundaries and also keep yourself from getting to the point of, you know, because you're doing a podcast and you're running your business, your um, real estate business, which I want to hear about. Like, how do you personally set these boundaries and standards for yourself? Yeah, I am a very large proponent of, of casting your vision. And so what I mean by that is, you know, every year I will review it. And I have literally a document typed up where, you know, me and my wife have sat down. Okay, what do we want our life to look like five years from now, three years from now, one year from now? right? And getting really clear on that and doing that in such a way that it's not, what do we think our life should look like, right? What does everyone else think our life should look like? What do we truly want it to look like, right? And we'll whittle that down. And then when we get to like roughly the one year part, you know, that's starting to be what I can control. So every right. year, you know, typically by the end of the year, November, December, I'll have it locked in for the following year. And I'll be like, okay, these are my three priorities for the year. So like for 2023, I have my relationship with my wife, my health, and then driving income in my real estate business, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, I think that a lot of people, number one, don't spend any time on that exercise, you know, of what do they truly want their life to look like, like getting intentional and, and it, and I, I, I'm not saying that to throw shade. I understand it because our daily life is so busy, right? right? Just day after day. It. Yeah. It's very easy to all of a sudden lift your head. Like we're recording this 
the first quarter of 2023 is already gone and we're going to blink and it's going to be, the year's going to be half over. And then now it's going to be 2024. Mm -hmm. It's very easy to lose track of that and be like, okay, I'm going to do that next week. I'm going to do that next month. And it just passes through. So taking the time to actually do that exercise, right? And right. Then that makes it a lot easier. You know, when I'm setting boundaries, when I'm assessing my standards, is it one of these three priorities, right? It just makes it a lot easier to say what you're going to say yes to, what you're going to say no to. Right. And then does it, do you ever veer from that plan or is it, uh, is it all about deciding ahead of time and then making your decisions based on that? I, I think I see a lot of my coaching clients get confused because there's all the options, you know, it's like, well, maybe I should do this. Maybe I should do that. And that's what sometimes keeps you overwhelmed and kind of stuck. Yeah. So to, to answer your question, I definitely fall off track, right? So by having this vision that, that allows me to quickly reset because everyone is going to fall off track. So I'm going to, I'll use health as an example because it affects everyone. So, you know, it's very common that people are going to set a, a goal or a new year's resolution around health of some sort. And then eventually they will fall off. Everyone right. does that. Right. Right. The catch is they don't go revisit their vision and their goal. So they'd never get back on track. Right. Right. And that's kind of like the secret sauce is everyone's going to stumble. It's how quick do you bring that back? Yeah. So it's like, failing, but learning from that failure and then trying again and not giving up. Yes. And the, yeah. And the thing is the, your vision, like what you are after has to be truly compelling, right? Like it has to inspire you. If you're doing it for someone else, because you think you should do it, well, you're probably going to fall off that and you're probably going to let go of it. And honestly, that's a good thing because it was never your goal to begin with. Right. Yeah, you're assigning it to someone else to tell you what to do. Yeah. Yeah, so along those lines, is that what we do with our jobs? Is that why some of this veterinary stuff is so hard? Because we're living under the expectations of either our bosses or our clients? Or do you think that contributes to some of this or the, you know, empathy piece? You know, are we trying to do something that we're not truly aligned with? I think so. I mean, it it wouldn't be fair for me to cast this huge net and say, yes, all veterinarians are doing this. Right. In, in my experience, I did it. And I speak to a lot of veterinarians and, the, and it's a common story. One of the things that I see is, you know, if we look at the path of a veterinarian, you know, you get into vet school year one, year two, year three, year four, maybe an internship, maybe a residency. Finally, you graduate. Along the way, there's all of these outcomes. So we're always setting outcome-based goals right. and, and that's fine. I'm not sitting here saying you shouldn't do that. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be proud of graduating, graduating as a veterinarian. But what happens is as we set these outcome-based goals, we're receiving our validation and we're receiving our joy from something external, mm. right? Like once I accomplish this, I will be happy, right? right? Once I've once I've graduated vet school, I will be happy. And the problem is the rules completely change. From the moment you graduate vet school to the to now that you're an, a veterinarian, you know, in practice or whatever you've chosen to do. Right? So that 
that veterinary track is very defined. Like here's the years, here's your schedule, there's the finish line. If you show up and put in a reasonable effort, you will cross the finish line. Right. And that, so we can look at that as a veterinary student and be like, think back to, you know, finals coming up at the end of the semester. And we can be like, okay, these next few weeks are going to suck, but I'm just going to grind, bear down. I'm going to study hard. I'm not going to go out with my friends. I might even skip most of my workouts. I'm just focusing on this and I'm just going to sprint through this. Right. We take that skill set and now we apply it in our veterinary career and it doesn't work because right. there is no finish line. You start sprinting and you're like, Today's really hard, but I'll just sprint and I'll get through it. But, and then tomorrow, same thing. And then next week and next month, and you're right. sprinting and you're sprinting. And finally you're like, where's this finish line? You know, like it's 30 years down the road and you right. realize like, I can't do this. Yeah. Well, and it, and I think that all comes back to our expectations of some, like I always say to people, you want something because you think it's going to make you happy. And in truth, that is never true. You know, you may want to have kids. That's going to make me happy. Well, yeah, some days, but other days it's terrible, right? I want to get married because that's going to make me happy. And I think that is the key to understanding life is that is not, that's not what you should be thinking is that this will make me happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's very much a about shift. the process. Yeah. And it's a shift from external stuff to internal Right? right. And like you're saying, I know it's, it's cliche to say it's, it's the journey, not the destination, but you know, it is about that enjoying it when you're, you know, you're in with your clients and the relationships you form in, in there, not just, I saw 20 clients today. Right. And I made X amount of dollars or yeah, my, my ACT was this much or whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's so key. I think if, if anybody can hear that out there and just understand that that's not it, you know? And I think that's why so many veterinarians are so disappointed so soon after getting out of vet med because they thought the degree and the job was gonna be their happiness. Mm -hmm. And but I mean, I'm, I'm sitting here kind of smiling as you say that, cause that was, it was totally me, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, I think of like, you're climbing a mountain and you're like, when I get to the top of this mountain, the view is just gonna be spectacular. Right. And you get there and you lift your head and you're like, and you're like, ah, oh. and like, is this it? And then, or it's just like, th there's just another mountain, right? Which is now your career. So it's when we attach it to that outcome, it, it can be really dangerous. Right. Well, and it can be spectacular as long as you're not expecting that the next climb is going to fulfill you. Like it's more about the climbing, right? Like I think mm -hmm. of when you say that mountain, I think of the people going up Everest or something like they want to get there very badly, but it's more about the process and then being in shape enough to get there and living through it and, and all of that. Yeah. And I've heard um, struggle. I've heard frustration is, you know, the gap between expectation and reality. So like to yeah. your point, when you have this massive expectation and reality sets in and there's a gap there, we get really frustrated. Right rather than living in the moment and enjoying it for what it is. Yes. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your book. Tell me what that, yeah. what started that for you. I'm fascinated by authors because it's something that I'm doing now and it's just like, 
you know, never thought I would and very exciting that I am, but tell me about it. Tell me why you wrote it, how it went, all of that. Yeah. So I mean, at the start of this, I mean, I wrote the book initially for myself, to be honest, writing a book was something I always wanted to do. I enjoy writing. And I simply looked at it as, you know, at the end of my life, am I going to regret not writing a book? And the answer was yes. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like, okay, I need to take care of this. I started this book when COVID hit back in 2020, right? So not a very efficient, yeah, (laughs) not an efficient process because we're here in 2023. So a lot of room for improvement. But what I found was, you know, back when basically the world shut down, and I have it, I have my big goal literally written on the wall next to me, like the big things I want to do in my life. And right there is write a book. Yeah. And I remember looking at my calendar and just all the meetings, all the coffee meetings, all that stuff just disappeared, right? Because no one was going out. Right. And I was like, if there was ever a time to do this thing where I have to sit in my office and just write, it's now. And so right. I decided on the spot, I'm writing a book. And I went and like circled it and I started writing it. So that's the, that was the prompt. The other component of it was, you know, going through my clinical veterinary career and, you know, lots of the stuff we talked about, like, you know, just feeling of burned out, feeling trapped, struggling with that identity piece. When I would talk to other veterinarians, they would feel the exact same way, right? right? I, I thought I was really unique. And no one else was feeling this way. And then I start talking to people and it's like, wow, everyone is feeling this way. Right. You know? And so the book was kind of like, you know, you're, you're best able to serve those that are in a similar situation to what you've been in. And I'm like, I've been there. I've been through all of this stuff. Right. So that was kind of what prompted was this desire to like, to help the veterinarians, right. Not helping the animals, Mm -hmm. helping the actual care provider. So that was kind of the genesis of why I wrote the book. The title, you're going to get peed on. Um, I mean, it is, I, I believe it to be true, both literally and figuratively. <laughs> For me, coming into the veterinary profession, it was very romanticized, right? It was, you know, and it is, it is an amazing profession. So I'm not saying otherwise. I'm just saying, I didn't know about all of these challenges, Right. I just got to see and all that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and even, you know, like the more the decision fatigue, the empathy fatigue, you know, the identity. So I just got to see, you know, the puppies and kittens and everyone loves their veterinarian. You know, he kind of swoops in. He's a hero. He saves the day. That's what I got to see. Didn't get to see this other part. And I remember being like, I wish I would have known. You know, it doesn't mean I would have changed my decision, but it's just it would have been nice to know. Because back to what we were talking about, gap between expectation and reality, there was a significant gap. Right. Right. So that's part of the book, too, is I want, you know, all veterinary students, all new grads, and even even older grads can benefit. But to be aware, like, you know, this is the real story. You will get peed on. Right. It's worth it. It's worth it. Yeah. But but you'll get peed on. Yeah. (laughs) Almost every day. Right. (laughs) I handled birds, so I got pooped on a lot. Bird poop and pee. Yeah, for sure. So what do you, what do you talk about in your book concerning the decision? Like you had to make a hard decision to get out. You're basically out of vet med 
in a way, you're still in because you're helping the vets, right? But you're not in clinical practice. So what do you think about that? Like, what, what do you recommend to people when they're struggling with that kind of decision to either change careers or get out completely or, you know, what, what do you talk about there in your book? Yeah. Um, and I'll dive into that. I just want to sort of restate and reframe. This is where you need that vision, right? You need to know where are you headed and you need to know your standards. And when you know those things and when you've thought of those in advance, that will guide your decision-making, right. right? Because you don't have to go and, and, and sort of hum and haw and like, well, where do I want to end up? You already know. So then in those moments, you can make the best decision that aligns with your vision and your standards. And so when I look at decision-making, and to be honest, that chapter in the book, for me, was the most difficult to write. I love talking about decision-making. I love thinking about how our brains think about them. But it is tricky to take how do you make decisions in life and then put that in a medical, like a book for veterinarians where you have medical decisions because they can be kind of different right when you have an animal's right. life on the line it's a it can be a different process than deciding where are you going to go what restaurant are you going to right right the biggest thing though that i see in decision making and i kind of use the analogy you know of a of a scalpel blade and doing surgery and i've kind of reframed decision fatigue to indecision fatigue because when i think back to practice you know, on any given day, we make however many decisions we make, lots of decisions. And I would have days in practice where I felt very exhausted. I couldn't come to any, you know, definitive conclusions on cases, like I was carrying them around all day. And it just felt like every open decision that I did not make was like another rock in my backpack. And I'm just walking around the clinic getting heavier and heavier and heavier. But then I would have days where I felt in flow right? Where it's just like, bang, 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 course of action here, treatment here, right? On those days, I made just as many decisions, but I didn't feel fatigued, right? Because I wasn't carrying them with me all day. Now, yeah, you, you made them and got them off your back. Yes, mm -hmm. right? So I like to think of it in, in sort of the surgery analogy and, you know, making an incision. So if we were standing over a, a dog spay, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to make an incision, right? We're going to cut into that vent ventral midline. I, then I think about, okay, if I was to debride something, right? If I was to, you know, take a piece of granulation tissue and cut it off and I'm debriding it. And that's how I would think of the decision. I'm cutting it away. So when I think of a de decision, I'm thinking about taking that piece of tissue and throwing it away, right? I don't hold on to it because I might want to sew it on later. And I think that's a, pro a problem where people get into is they hold on to the decisions they didn't make or the choices they didn't make, right? If there's A, B, and C, and I pick B, I need to let go of A and C. Right. And not second guess that it's not going to be the right decision. I think that's, that's why we hang on to it, right? Because we're afraid we didn't make the right one. Yes. And we feel like if we don't make the right one, then we're not perfect or there's something wrong with us. Yeah. And I mean, the reality is you can always revisit and come back around, but whatever it is that you chose, if you don't go all in on it, you'll never really know the outcome. Right. You know, like and I'll use health again, just because it's common and easy. 
if you don't make a firm decision to do, you know, whatever it is that's fully in alignment with you and then commit to that decision and really give it an honest chance, you'll never know if it was the right decision. Right. You'll have one foot in decision A and one foot in decision B and you'll go nowhere. Right. And that bouncing back and forth between decisions is what causes the fatigue that we talk about. Is that, yeah, I, is that churn and burn about, well, maybe I should do this. Well, maybe I should do that. I, I see that with a lot of my coaching clients is they're trying to figure out what to do in any situation with a client, with their family. And because they can't nail it down and just like pick something and go and be competent in it, that's where all of the the churn and burn and decision in fatigue and all that, you know, the indecision, like you said, fatigue. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you're making the same decision multiple times, right? right. Cause you never really right. decide it. So you got to pick it up, kick it around in your brain, set it down, pick it up. That just adds to it. Um, yeah. I listened to one of your previous episodes. I forget the guest name, but you guys had talked about, you know, if the clinic just decides at 4.50 p.m., we are no longer seeing appointments. If that's just clinic policy, make the decision once, done. Right. As opposed to every single time a client comes in at 4.54, 4.55, and now the receptionist has to decide, the vet has to decide. So I call those kind of like root cause decisions. Where can right. you make one decision that will eliminate making 1,000 other decisions? Yeah, I love that. Right. And you can do that like, tactically you can do this in small ways you know in your house i'll use use the the health analogy again it, it comes down to it i mean it's obvious but it saves so much energy if you only bring the food in your house that you know aligns with your vision and your standard you only have to make that decision at the grocery store you right. don't have to make it every time you open the fridge <laughs> right every time you look at the ice cream <laughs> yeah you don't and, yeah. and it is i know those are like maybe comical, but they, they all add up. Right. Yeah, and you can absolutely. go even, you can go even further. You don't have to be the one that goes to the grocery store, right? right? Like we now have it in place in our house where we have someone that, that like helps us with our meal prep, they buy the groceries. So one time we have to tell them, this is how we would like to eat done. We've made every decision around our eating. Like think about how much energy that saves you if you're not shopping and deciding what to pick off the shelf, putting it in your pantry, having to look at it every day, meal plan your whole week, you get a ton. A lot of people focus on time. Time is important. I would argue that energy and attention are more important. Mm -hmm. Think about how much energy and attention you get back by not having that on your plate. Yeah, I love that. I, I talk about that a lot when people are in their practices. It's like, can you simplify whatever it is that the problem is so it is kind of an auto automated, you know, because if you don't have to make those decisions, like you said, it's already made for you, then it takes a lot of that, even the guilt it takes away. If I'm not yeah. turning the client away, but my receptionist is, even if the client's angry, there's, there's a buffer space between them and me, right? And me making that decision or me going back on my boundary because I felt guilty or whatever. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's a huge part. I know I guilt was a large driver for a lot of things for me. Yeah. You know, I can, I can think of one, one uh, of my Christmas holidays where I had four days off 
And I spent two of them going into the clinic doing, you know, quote unquote, emergency surgeries. And, and it was, I helped the pet that was excellent, but we live in a city of over 300,000. There was other options. Like right. it did not have to be me. Right. Yeah. Right. But it was the guilt of like, oh, that's one of our clients. But on the flip side, like the emotional strain, obviously my wife, not super happy about that. Like we just gave up 50% of our Christmas holidays. Right. Right. But if you just take it out of your hands, it would have yeah. never happened. Yeah. It automatically there's a, there's a recording on the phone that tells them to go to the emergency clinic and you put the phones on before you close. Yeah. So you don't have to do that. So tell me a little bit about the whole real estate thing. How did that come about? Cause that's really interesting. Yeah. Went into so, real estate. Yeah. A couple, couple stories on that. So number one, kind of by accident and by luck, when I went to veterinary school, my parents had the foresight to purchase a house. And I think it had five or six bedrooms. And the deal was, if I fill those bedrooms with roommates, I got to live rent free. Nice. Right. So, so really excellent deal for me. I had my housing, uh, you know, covered all through veterinary school. It was their house. I didn't own it. But at the end of my vet school, they sold it. And they did really well, like they made a couple hundred thousand on it. And so I remember seeing that and being like, wow, like, I had no clue people could do this. That was amazing. Right. Take that, combine that with the story I told previously of seeing, you know, my veterinary mentor, the veterinary owner back at the vet clinic needing to work. That's when I started to be like, okay, I have to do something financially different, right? Before I was just going to, you know, save 10% of my paycheck and throw it in a mutual fund and, and be, be good. And that's when I was like, okay, I got to do something different. And I remembered, wow, that real estate investment really worked well back in vet school. I'm going to dig deeper into this. Right. And so I went, you know, into all of the books and, 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 you know, meetups and whatnot, researching real estate. And finally in 2012, me and my wife bought, you know, our first rental property. Right. So I'm still working as a vet. She's still working in her professional career. We buy this rental property. And I mean, there's nothing magical about it. It is literally a house. It has a basement suite. Tenants move in, they pay rent, and you kind of set it on autopilot. I, I kind of viewed it as like, it's just this piggy bank that's there. And slowly the mortgage pays down. And, you know, someday the mortgage will be paid off and it'll be worth several hundred thousand dollars. Right. right. When we start reviewing, you know, the year-end financial statements, that's when you get your mortgage statement and see, wow, we paid off 8000 we paid off 10000 But the catch is, like, it didn't come out of our pocket, right? The tenants through the rent paid that. Right. And we started looking at what, it, what this was doing for our financial future, and we were like, wow, we need to do more of these. Right. Right. And so that was the catalyst that got me and my wife, you know, investing fairly heavily in real estate. Yeah. And what, what do you find fascinating about it? And why, why is it better for you than vet med? That's a great question. <laughs> because I will say like what, what you will always get from me is, you know, what I believe to be full transparency. Right. For, so in 2012, I was considering buying the veterinary practice that I was working at. And we had just bought one rental and we were considering buying our another rental. Okay. And so for me, I was felt like I was at a bit of a fork in the road where, where I was like, okay, am I going into veterinary clinic ownership? And I've always been entrepreneurial and business minded. So 
Right. That was very logical. Like everyone expected me to own a veterinary clinic. Right. And to be honest, I thought I would also at graduation. Right. Yeah. So I was sitting there looking at that and looking at, okay, what does this mean? Like sure the financial commitment, but then, you know, having the staff, having the people being there versus the real estate investment and how it was operating and everyone has to optimize for something. I'm optimizing for time freedom, right? Right. I'm not optimizing for absolute most amount of money I can possibly make. Right. Right. Because I will like 100% any veterinarian listening. If you truly want to own a veterinary practice, right? If you want it, not, not that you think you should, because other people are telling you to, if you want it and you're aware of what that means, 1 million percent, you should do it. Yeah, right? well, that's what I, I did. And I agree with you because I wouldn't, I would have not been happy had I not checked that off my bucket list. Like you you checked off your book. It was like yeah. you know, hospital ownership, that's for me. And yeah. and I really did love it. And it's a, it's a great path, but you still have to have your standards and your boundaries and, and your um, priorities in, in check. So you don't spend a million percent of your time in that practice. Yeah. So I agree with you. Yeah. 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 And so I I just always want to be really clear. I am not saying to veterinarians that real estate is better than owning a veterinary clinic because right. veterinary clinics can be wildly successful and be, you know, the best investment you've ever made and the best way to spend your time. Right. Real estate was just more in alignment for me, you know, at that stage of life with what I was looking to accomplish. Right. right. I was looking to find a way where I could decouple, you know, me spending time to get a paycheck. Right. And so I was looking at real estate as this recurring revenue model, you know, month after month rent comes in and that's what I was trying to build. And I was like, okay, I can build multiple of these, right. I don't have to have just one house. I can, I can scale this. Right. Right. And so what did you do? Did you go and get your real estate license or did you just buy a few places and see how it went? Like what, what was the process if somebody out there is a veterinarian and they're like, hey, you know, I really don't want to be a hospital owner, but this real estate thing sounds interesting. Maybe I can do both. Cause mm -hmm. I would offer that you could. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Um, a couple things on that. Number one, you have to be very clear on whether you want to be active in real estate or passive. Cause it is a huge myth that having a rental property is passive, right? If you're the manager, if you're the one answering the phone, it is anything but passive. You are, you are signing up for an active side hustle in addition to your veterinary career. Right. Not saying that's good or bad, just saying full transparency. Be ready, you, yeah. Because the toilets clog and the le roof leaks and yeah. Just like yeah. owning a practice. <laughs> yeah. It's not so, a pilot. I mean, I'm, I kind of made the decision. I'm going to be active. Yeah, I'm aware of that. And we started initially with single family homes that had basement suites. Very simple. If, if any veterinarian is listening and, you know, wants to maybe we'll say dip their toe in house hacking is a great way to start. Like just what I did in veterinary school, this is going to depend on your phase of, of life probably, right? Like if you have a house full of kids, you probably don't want a bunch of roommates, right. um, you know, but depending where you are in your life, house hacking, especially for veterinary students, simply having roommates get used to having to manage the property. Like when the furnace quits, 
someone has to fix it or someone has to call someone to fix it. Like mm -hmm. it's simple stuff, but it just has to be done. Um, so that'd be a, a really easy entry point. Me and my wife, we went on that single family journey. And again, I looked at it a lot differently than a lot of people. A lot of people will look at real estate and think, okay, if this house spits out $500 of cash flow per month, you know, I need 20 houses to replace my $100,000 a year veterinary income. And that's what they're going after. I looked at it like, I'm just going to set this. I, I pictured myself at a grocery store. I'm just going to set this house on the end of the conveyor belt. And I'm going to forget we own it for 10 years. Obviously, we're going to still manage it and whatnot, but right. I'm not going to really touch it for 10 years. And when 10 years comes up, now I'm going to have a lot of options because I can sell the house. I can refinance. I can do whatever I want. I pictured it as selling it. And so I know if I sell that house, there is going to be more than one year of veterinary salary of equity in that house. Right. That's how I structured it. So then we just started stacking these like one, one year, two, like the year after year, 10 years later. And we just started this last year. We start selling off these houses and, Every time we sell a house, we get an annual salary coming right. in. So it, I was looking at it as like buy myself options. Okay. Yeah. What I've, what I've done since is I have scaled up. So I took all that sort of knowledge and skills from the single family world. Now I buy apartment buildings. So instead of just like a single house, you know, I'll buy an 18 unit apartment building is the one we're working on right now. Right. Same, same concept though, just bigger. Okay. So it was a slow buildup. Like you're not, you're not professing that people go out there and just start taking out big mortgages on bunches of properties without really having a plan. No. So, and it, this is an interesting question because if anyone does consume much of my content, I am pro debt, which a lot of people will, will be like, wow. Like I know there's, there's various other personalities out there that are like, do not have debt ever for any circumstance. Right. I really separate good debt and bad debt, right? Like bad debt being credit card debt. You go and you buy, you know, clothes or a boat or whatever it is. Good Something debt that isn't going to pay you back. Yes. I'm a big fan though of good debt, but it is, you have to use it wisely, right? Like I think of a scalpel blade again, a scalpel blade is an incredibly powerful tool in the right hands, right? If I give a scalpel blade to a surgeon, they can save an animal's life. Right. If I give a scalpel blade to a toddler, they can badly hurt themselves. That's debt. So, so I'm not saying don't use it. It's just give it the respect it deserves. You know, study, research, know how to use it. You don't want to just be throwing it around. Right. 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 So is this something that you talk about on your podcast? We do have episodes. Kind of so, things, or are you talking more to the veterinarians about having um, more balance and more interest in their life and taking their time back and those kind of things? We cover both. So when we look at our podcast, basically everything that's not medicine and surgery, right? There's you're never okay. gonna hear you're never gonna hear a case study on our podcast or like yeah. this is how you perform this surgery. Yeah. It's everything else. Kind of like mine. <laughs> yeah, we're very yeah. similar, like a, yeah. a lot of alignment, you know, in what we talk about. Jonathan and I are both fairly business oriented. So, you know, we do talk to a lot of veterinary entrepreneurs that are doing random interesting stuff. things. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, I'm going to have to listen.
So what, what else do we need to talk about? What did I not ask you that you want to make sure that we get out there on this podcast for my listeners and, and maybe yours too, if they decide to listen along with us? Yeah. Um, for some reason, intuitively environment jumped out when you asked that question. Okay. Um, Let's talk about that. Like environment yeah. of the, of your hospital or what do you mean? Of everything. So okay. what's funny when I was writing my book, and again, remember it took a really long time. And one of the things I, I always, it's not easy to, to do. No, it, it was not. <laughs> it's one, hard. Of, <laughs> one of the reframes I always try to remember is, you know, things happen for you, not to you. And mm -hmm. I, I had a chapter in there and I still have a chapter in there, which we would say is on self care. Right. And I had the right. original chapter and it was pretty much the basic self-care chapter that you would probably read everywhere where it's like, these are some things you should do for self-care. Right. And it was really bothering me because I was like, veterinarians everywhere. Like we are smart people, right? Like we are scientifically trained. We know what we should do and what we shouldn't do. Sometimes we're just not doing it. Right. So I, I was really uneasy with this chapter because I was like, this is useless. Like everyone knows this. This doesn't this doesn't move the needle in any meaningful way. Right. And so I started researching a lot into like habits and what drives our actual behavior. Mm -hmm. Right. And that chapter completely transformed into a, a chapter still on self-care, but all I talk about is your environment. Right. Okay. And the reason I talk about that is when we look at environment in, in any situation, whether it's your veterinary clinic or your bedroom, your environment is constantly shaping you and you constantly have the ability to shape your environment, right? Okay. And mm -hmm. a lot of times as humans, you know, maybe we trick ourselves into thinking we're in full control. We absolutely are not. Like a large percentage of our life is happening unconsciously, right? right. So we'll, we will be unconsciously triggered by all sorts of things. So to truly succeed, you need to put yourself in environments where that like unconscious default pattern is taking you in the proper direction. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep. so one analogy, like or, 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 uh, I did this on our podcast to, to Jonathan, our co-host. So apologies, I'm putting you on the spot, but if, <laughs> if we had, let's take uh, Emma, the veterinarian is flying somewhere and she has a layover at the, at the airport and so she lands and she's got to get across the airport really quickly, right? So she's hustling and she's walking and someone measures her speed. She's walking at five miles per hour through the airport. And she gets onto one of those horizontal, you know, moving walkways, right? Mm -hmm. And it's going three miles an hour. If she jumps on that, how fast is she going? I would say eight. <laughs> intuitively, absolutely. You, intuitively, that would be totally correct. Right. The catch is I didn't tell you which way the walkway was going. Oh, true. That's tricky. Yeah, if it's yeah. going towards you, it's a different story, right? Then you're only yeah. going to. <laughs> yeah, that's our environment. Yeah. Okay. That's, cool. I that's like that our environment. That's a good one. I love right? visuals, so, so that's helpful. Yeah. So you can take a veterinarian that is, you know, working as hard as they can, you know, doing a lot of things right, working hard, going five miles an hour. Put them in an environment that's going against them, not in alignment with them, you know, put basically pushing them backwards. That just creates all this friction. 
Mm -hmm. Right. And, and yeah. this happens everywhere. That's happens in the vet clinic. I said the bedroom because the bedroom is really easy to visualize. Like if we think about what's the purpose, it's to sleep. And it's like, so why do people put TVs in their bedroom? Right. Yeah. It's completely against the goal of sleeping. Right. And it's, it's just a trigger. So now you, you start layering all these things in, you have to decide not to turn the TV on. Right. Instead Every, of already being determined for you, like you said before. Yeah. yeah. If it's just not even in the room, there's no trigger. It takes no energy. The unconscious pattern is go to sleep. Right. Right. And these are very simple things, but you can layer them throughout your life to achieve what you want. Right. If there's a bowl of apple sitting on your counter versus a bowl of chips, which one, you know, if only one of them's there, that's what you're going to eat. Right. Right. And I, th I always think about, um, the last veterinary clinic I worked at for me to get from my office to the treatment room, you had to walk through this sort of little hallway and, and there was a ledge and on that ledge was where all of the stuff that the clients brought in was put all now, the goodies, all the goodies. Now, don't get me wrong. The clients like mean, well, they're showing their appreciation. There's a lot of wonderful things that are happening here. Right. But when you have to walk by boxes of chocolates, and cookies, you know, 200 times a day, eventually it gets you. Eventually yeah. you're like, yeah, I'll, I'll have some of that. Especially right? because we use that as a reward or to try to tamp down our emotions. If we're feeling highly stressed, it's like, oh, well, if I just eat this donut, I'll feel so much better. When, when in truth, you, you feel worse, you might feel better in the moment, Yeah, but you feel worse yeah. in the end. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So that would be, Environment. I've I've become a really big proponent of you know really analyzing your environment and what can you change in your environment that will then change your behavior to get the results you're looking for. Okay, so I guess I guess my question to follow up that would be: Do you have an example of setting up your environment for success in the hospital as far as? keeping your, keeping your stress under control, your head on straight or your decision-making, like, is there an example of how you can set up your practice to be more other than the donuts? Don't let them bring in the donuts. <laughs> Does that make yeah. sense? I'm asking, I'm asking you a weird question. So, yeah, I have a, a few ideas. Um, to be honest, I'm going to borrow a lot of these from the co-host Jonathan, because he just designed his own, own practice. Right. So I, I don't have you know, boots on the ground, firsthand experience designing a veterinary hospital, you know, to alleviate some of these. So right. what jump, what jumps to mind for me, um, I, I have a good saying from my trainer that says, if you can't breathe there, you can't be there. Right. Okay. And I'm a big fan of, you know, mindfulness based stress reduction, and and focusing on how we breathe, because I find that's probably the biggest link to getting present. Right. And a lot of stressful situations in the veterinary clinic, you know, whether it be an angry client or whatnot, it's pretty easy to like lose your breath, start breathing very shallow, you know, and you, you almost detach, right. You, you're not as present as you could be because yeah. you're caught in a bunch of feelings. Yeah. All right? that emotion. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I know one of the things he has done um, is a cool setup. He has sort of the main floor of his hospital and then there is a bit of a basement area Right. And it's just that that chance where this the staff, you know, can get away, get away, get quiet 
you know, and have that time. They do have like a quiet room, you know, that has sort of the hammock and whatnot. Mm. I always would joke around when I was a new grad, our quiet room was the bathroom, you know, so you would, <laughs> you would see me scurrying to the bathroom, even though I don't have to use the bathroom. Yeah. I say that I'm all like, the time. And then yeah. sometimes your staff slips notes under the door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you come out to long. a bunch of sticky notes on the, on the door and you're like, I was yeah. just trying to take a few minutes. Right. So, you know, that would be one is just those, those areas and places that sort of give you permission to just, you know, catch up. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of optimizing for me, uh, clinic records was always the bane of my existence, you know, I, know, so me always too. Do... I hate writing up records. Yeah. So just trying to optimize that, like that space where you do it. So it's minim like minimized from distractions. Like I've, I've found personally social media and cell phones. I mean, they're wonderful tools. They truly are, but they also can do a lot of harm, like a lot of distraction. You have a notifications for everything coming up, right. you know, turning those off, just getting focused because I've said, as I mentioned, I believe time management should more appropriately be termed attention management, right? Like where is your attention? Cause you can, you can be present somewhere, but not paying attention to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Especially someone like me who's very easily distracted. And the extroverts, a lot of veterinarians are introverts. But if you're an extrovert like me, you don't want to be in the office with the door closed because you might miss something. And so it's yeah. very difficult to make yourself focus. So I like that idea about having quiet spaces, maybe offices, like individual offices for the doctors so they can shut the doors you know, so people aren't always talking to each other. I love that idea with environment. Yeah. Yeah. It's very powerful. I'd encourage everyone, you know, if they're not getting that result, just really, you have to look and you have to look at the micro environment and then the macro environment, right? Because even in the vet clinic, there's the vet clinic, but it's made up of all these different environments, right? The pharmacy, the treatment room, the doctor's office, the reception. Yeah. And I think that's why so many of us like surgery, because that's the only place that you get to think and concentrate right? Like I have so many vets tell me I love surgery because there's no clients and I can just like do my little spay and just all I have to listen to is the beeping and ask the tech if my dog's okay and just kind of like focus in. So it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. All right. Well, I, I love this conversation. I don't want to keep you too much longer because I know we've been going at it for a while, but can you tell people where they can find you if they want to learn more about your podcast, about your book, um, about what you teach, where can they yeah, find you? Absolutely. So the podcast is the veterinary project. Uh, you can find that online at, at the veterinary project or on social media on the same handle. Um, me personally, uh, www.michaelbug.com or on Instagram, michaelbug.dvm. Uh, the book is available via both of those websites or most simply just Amazon, you know, all major online retailers carry it. It's you're going to get peed on. Oh, I love it. Well, congratulations. That's it's a big accomplishment to write a book. Well, thank you so very I, much. I think that's amazing. So and I definitely am going to have to read it. So I will okay. I will get a copy. Nice. I appreciate that. Yeah. All right. So everybody, I really appreciate your attention today. This has been a really interesting and um enlightening conversation with Dr. Michael Bug. I really appreciate you being here, Mike. Thanks, Julie. Have Wonderful. a beautiful week, everyone. Bye. Bye, Mike. See you.